If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter 23, and if you are using one of the Bibles in the the pew pocket in front of you, that is page 651, Jeremiah chapter 23, as we continue in our series on... um, the promises of Christmas moving through the Advent season. Last week we looked at the promise of his coming birth and the, the significance of that for us today. And um, This morning we're going to look at the promise of his life. And as the Advent reading pointed out, that's no small thing, although oftentimes we take it for granted when we think about why did Christ come into this world, it's not often that we think in terms of living a perfect life, we almost always move directly to, well, he had to die to pay for sin. His blood had to be shed to atone for sin. So we are going to be splitting this message of um, righteousness. What does it look like um, for a person to be made righteous? What does the idea of righteousness entail in both Christ's life and his death. So oftentimes theologians call this um, the active obedience of Christ would be his perfect life in obeying the law and his passive obedience means um, his suffering. Passive in the the sense of Latin, not passive in terms of not being active. It's kind of confusing for us, right? Um, But so we have his active obedience in the life that he lived, and his suffering obedience on the cross. And those together form the core of the righteousness that you and I have access to through Christ, that we have access to in Christ. Connecting that to this morning's message is pretty easy, although not a lot of people think about that at Christmas. When they think of Jesus' life, they think of um, Jesus took on flesh, and in humility became a baby, born in relative obscurity, and they, they don't take into account everything that happened in between that event and Easter, when he was crucified. But we're going to look at that, and look at the significance of it, so that this is, just to prepare us, this is kind of the analogy that I, I came up with in terms of... Um, just to get us ready to read God's promise of righteousness to his people in Jeremiah. And then we're going to look at that in the New Testament after in the book of Philippians um, to try to get us to understand what is actually at play, what's actually happening there. And the best example I could think of is for any baseball fans out there, I'm not a huge baseball fan by any means, but I thought of... You know, imagine a situation, and this is never going to happen, right, because it's not in the rules of baseball, um, that there was a pitcher, right? Pitchers are notoriously great hitters, if I'm not mistaken. They're the best, the best hitters ever. And so the American League has this wonderful, I would say an exception, because I was always a National League fan when I was a kid, of the, the designated hitter, Right? You could have somebody, generally, it would take the spot of a pitcher in the batting order who would bat on behalf of the pitcher. Now, that is a great thing for a sports team because all of a sudden you've got nine people that can 
hit decent instead of eight and this guy who just throws, right? And it's how am I being um, so critical of pitchers? The worst pitcher is probably a better hitter than I would ever be, right? But now imagine if it went even a step further to where the pitcher had somebody who hit in his spot in the roster, but the stats of that hitter went to the pitcher. So instead of the pitcher hitting, he has somebody else hit in his place, and then that person doesn't get the stats of so many, you know, whatever his batting average is, on-base percentage or whatever. All of that goes to the pitcher that didn't hit. Now take it a step even further. Imagine that you are a pitcher from the National League. No designated hitters. No chance to ever bat a 1,000, right? Because it's impossible already. But not only that, but you're a, a, a measly pitcher, right? You've got no chance. Imagine that you get traded to an American League team. And your designated hitter bats a 1,000. Always. And his stats are given to you. So he bats in your place and you get his perfect record. That is what Christ did for us. That is what the significance of his life is. And as we look at God's promise to his people here in Jeremiah chapter 23, we're going to ask this question of why did Jesus Christ come? Why was the promise of his coming birth important? We looked at that last week. And now we're going to look at why was his life important? Why was the promise of the coming life of this Messiah so drastically important and different that it was a game changer? Now, the first thing, even before we start into our text, um, actually, the very first thing, let me pray. I asked Jeremy to pray for me before I've been feeling a little off this morning, um, just kind of spiritually heavy, and I... I don't want to forget the fact that we all need the Spirit to help us get what's coming through here. So let me go ahead and pray that God would fix our eyes on him. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the great privilege we have to come before you, Lord, um, to read your word. Lord, we have your word not only in our language, but in so many different translations, and we take that for granted We have um, the freedom to gather together in this building. We have so many things going for us. And yet, like the Advent reading said, we are all bringing our sinful hearts into this morning. Myself included, Lord, distracted. Feeling a heaviness, feeling a weight um, that is part my flesh. It's part spiritual. um, It's part opposition. And I need you right now, Lord, to um, give me the confidence to, to remember that I'm just your mouthpiece. I'm just declaring what you have already spoken in your word. I need you to work in the hearts of our congregation here in every person's life this morning to be receptive, not to what I have to say, but what your spirit is teaching through the word, God. Would you please bring fruit into our lives through this time, Lord? Would you please make the promise of Christ's life more precious to us, more important, and um, more practical 
through our time together this morning. We love you and we thank you that overcoming our sinfulness, overcoming our being easily distracted, um, overcoming everything that separates us from you is only possible, not because of what we do, but because of what you have done in coming toward us, in sending your son to die on our behalf, in sending your spirit to indwell us. Speak in us and speak through me this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Now, before we get into the, the text of, of Jeremiah 23 here, um, there's just this, from the context of Jeremiah, and just generally from the context of the whole Old Testament leading up to Jeremiah 23 and, and beyond, we have this first reason, this first truth of why did Jesus Christ live, not just be born, but why did he live on this earth? And that is because we are all born under the curse of the law. There was, for God's people, this command that generally, if you obey, you will receive life and blessing. He told his people that. He gave them the law, and he said, Do this, and it will be well for you. Even included in the Ten Commandments, right? The the command to honor your father and mother. And Paul in the New Testament says, it's it's the first command with a promise. Honor your father and mother, and it will be well for you. I remind my kids of that all the time. I'm not just trying to make your life difficult. I'm trying to help you to have a good life, a flourishing life. This idea, if you obey the law, you'll live, you'll have life, and if you disobey, you'll get the opposite, death, curse. And we see it played out, and that's why this is the first thing to take into account when we think of why did Jesus Christ live on this earth, is because God had given this command to the people to live and to obey, and they didn't do it. That's the story of God's people in the Old Testament. When you just read through it, you see, wow, these people are never obedient. God opens the sea up in front of them. They walk through on dry land. He destroys an army behind them. And the first thing that they're thinking is, there's a desert in front of us. Did you bring us out here to starve, to die? At least we had meat. We were slaves in Egypt, but we had meat that we could eat. Right? It's probably not true. I doubt they were eating a ton of meat as slaves in Egypt. But still, they had just seen this, this miraculous thing. <clears throat> and their first thought is, we're going to die out here in the wilderness. Okay? They were given the law, and they couldn't obey it. They didn't obey it. Now, is when Paul quotes... Um, the Old Testament in the book of Galatians, he, he says this, he says, the one who does them will live by them. He's talking about the law. So there's this idea of you obey this law and you will have life. You'll have life. But the purpose of the law was not to give you and I life. The purpose of the law was to imprison us under sin. The law was given to show us that we couldn't obey the law. When Paul says in Galatians 3, I believe it is, that the the law imprisoned um, 
imprisoned everyone under sin. He says often things in terms, in things like, by the, the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, will be declared righteous, will be declared as having a right standing with God. He is talking about this law. You obey, you obey God perfectly to get right standing with God? Impossible. Forget about it. You can't do it. The Advent reading was so clear about that. I can't make it, I have not made it five minutes this morning without sinning. Okay? I will just be open. And I'm not even just saying that because it's theologically true. It's actually true. Okay? And I know it's true for all of you, you nice little Sunday school people, but I know things. <clears throat> but the law, it showed that the, the people could never attain God's Um, They could never attain right standing with God through the law, but it also established that it was necessary. That level of holiness was necessary to be in God's presence. And so when God gives the law, like the book of Leviticus, it can be super boring, right, for people to read through, and it's just like rule after rule after rule after rule after rule. But the main gist of it is you have God's presence in the tabernacle, in the middle of the camp, right? Right? There is this idea that if you're unclean, if you touch a dead body, if you, um, if you do anything that would make you unclean, you go outside of the camp. And that was God saying, this law is what I require if I'm going to live with you. If I'm going to be with you, you have to attain this level of purity, this level of separation from sin and idols. And of course, the problem with this is obvious, like I've already said, no one can do it. Not one single person can do it. It comes out in the heroes of the Old Testament. We think of King David, he couldn't do it. King Solomon, he couldn't do it. The prophets even, they couldn't do it. Even Adam, who was born without the curse of sin on him, right? He's created directly by God. He couldn't do it. He had one rule to obey. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. Everything else, you can eat of it. And he couldn't do it. We can't do it. Romans chapter 8, 6 through 8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh can't submit to God's law. It's not possible for it to. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in his sight, since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. Israel, the individuals in the nation who received the law, they were no different from you or I in their inability to obey God's law. They couldn't obey, even if they looked for ways out, right? They, they tried as hard as they could. Um, they were under, um, they were oppressed by peoples around them, and they would 
cry out to God and he would deliver them and then they would fall back into sin and then slavery and oppression and then they would cry out and he would deliver them through the judges in the book of Judges. When they demanded a king, they were expecting their king to lead them into this um, perfect kingdom, I guess, this this kingdom of God in the nation of Israel. But they were no different from us. They didn't find it in their leaders. And they ended up here in Jeremiah 23 at one of the lowest points in their history. Assyria in the north and Babylon coming from the east were coming and occupying them. And not only take, not only um, over them in the sense in their land, but they were going to get so sick of this rebellious, stubborn people that they were going to exile them and send them all over the kingdom. Take away their identity, take away the promises seemingly so that God had made to them. But this was God's punishment for them. In the, the prophet, the book of Habakkuk, he talks about, God, your people are so wicked. Help us. And God says, don't worry. I'm going to punish them <laughs> with the Babylonians, and they're going to come. And he says, what? That's not right. You can't punish your wicked people with the even more wicked people. And God says, don't worry. You just be faithful. I'm going to work it all out. And in here in, in the book of Jeremiah, we have a promise that their exile is only going to be for a certain amount of time and God will bring them back. And this is where the promise in Jeremiah comes in, where they had been looking for a way out under the curse of the law and God is here making a promise. He's making a way out for them. So after describing how their shepherds that they were maybe putting their faith in led them astray, led them into idolatry, led them into exile, basically, throughout the years. Here, God says in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness, or the Lord our righteousness. This was God's promise to them in the face of living out the consequences of their own sin, the result of their own living under the curse of the law. Now that brings us to the second point of why did Jesus Christ live? If that first one is he lived because we are under, all under the curse of the law, here we see he lived because we all try to avoid the punishment of the law. And so um, we want rescue not from the source of our punishment, the reason why we are under the curse of the law, but rather we want relief from the consequences of disobedience. We want relief from the discipline that comes from disobedience. And this plays out in how the Jews heard this promise and read this promise at this time and also throughout the years up until Christ's coming. 
they looked at the, this promise of the, um, the righteous branch of David in terms of geography and politics. So they were thinking, okay, the Lord, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He's going to reign as king. He's going to deal wisely. He's going to execute justice and righteousness in the land. We will dwell in security again. Get these Babylonians out of here. Right, God, we're your people. Do it. All right. Sounds good, doesn't it? But it doesn't fix the problem of the curse of the law. It doesn't fix their disobedience. So even when Jesus Christ came, right, hundreds of years later, they were still thinking in terms, because this, this developed from, okay, God, send the righteous branch who's going to deliver us from the hand of the Babylonians. Yes, doesn't happen. Okay, send us the righteous branch who is going to save us from the Medes and the Persians. Deliver us. Doesn't happen. Save us from the Greeks. Doesn't happen. And by the time Christ is born and the people are living under the Romans, they're still waiting for the Messiah, this righteous branch, to come and deliver them from the Roman rule. The Roman rule. Now, in their defense... It wasn't super clear, right? <laughs> um, even the, the verse in verse uh, 6, the second half of it, when it says, describes this ruler and says, Israel, or it says, and this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Well, that name is Zedekiah. And it just so happens that one of the kings around this time, guess what his name is? Zedekiah, right? He wasn't a good king, by any means, yet the people are still thinking, okay, to get out of the curse of the law, we, we, because of our disobedience of the law, we're living under the curse of it, we are living out the consequences of it now, and God has made this promise to give us a king who will deliver us, and his name will be Zedekiah, the Lord, our righteousness. We've got a Zedekiah right here. What's the problem with that Zedekiah? He's living under the curse of the law, just like they are. He's looking for an out from the consequences of sin, just like they are. They needed, they needed a righteousness. They needed a Zedekiah who was not under the law. They needed a Zedekiah who was free from the curse of sin and death. As things were, it was, it was impossible. Their Zedekiah could never save them. Impossible. He could never deliver them from this, the, real, the real thing that they needed deliverance from. They were looking at the wrong enemies. They weren't looking at sin. But, right? But God. These are some of the most amazing things about the scriptures, right? Right? It looks hopeless. It is hopeless. I'm sorry. It's just plain bad, right? All the promises that look like you get back from, from exile and things are going to be fine and dandy like sour candy, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And God's people are left with a, a taste in their mouth like there has to be something more. 
So thirdly, we've, we've seen that we needed the, Jesus Christ, the promise of his life and his living because we're under the curse of the law. We need it um, we need it because we try to avoid the punishment of the law instead of going to the source and getting help to get rid of the source of our being under the curse of the law. And here we, we see that Jesus Christ had to come and live because we need a righteousness. We need a right standing with God that is foreign to us, that doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from our own self. It doesn't come from our own people it comes from out there. It's foreign. It's alien. It's somebody else's righteousness that is going to be given to us. 1 Corinthians 1, um, 30 and, verses 30 and 31 says that Christ is our righteousness and our wisdom and our sanctification so the Lord is Zedekiah, right? The Lord is our righteousness. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus Christ was sent by God to be our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This idea that if you're going to get out from under the curse of God, you need to be connected to a second, a different righteousness that comes from without, that comes to you. And in Matthew 3, 13, when Jesus is baptized, he says this funny thing, and he goes to be baptized by John, and John tries to prevent him. He's like, I can't baptize you, Jesus. You need to baptize me. And this is what Jesus says. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when we say we need a righteousness that comes from without We need a life of Christ that is full. We need Jesus Christ to be baptized on our behalf. A baptism of repentance, right, with John. We need Jesus Christ to live a childhood, obedient to his parents on our behalf. We need him to live a life of neighboring that is perfect on our behalf, because you and I can't do it. Even in our obedience, I am of the persuasion that even when I do something good and right, it is tainted by sin. It's there. Even after conversion, right? I didn't grow up in a Christian home, um, so I didn't grow up singing Jesus Loves the Little Children and things like that that would make me righteous, right? I grew up watching the Cubs on WGN um, in Wyoming. Isn't that strange? Um, I needed a foreign righteousness. I needed Jesus to obey on my behalf so that I could have right standing with God. This idea of fulfilling all righteousness, if you turn to Philippians chapter 3,
is what Paul talks about when he shares his experience of of life, of trying to get out from under the curse of the law, of trying to get out of the consequences of living under that curse. This was his experience. He says this, Philippians chapter 3, that's page 981 in your pew Bible, if that's what you're using. Starting in verse 3, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul had lived under the guise of trying to earn right standing with God, trying to earn a way out of that curse under the law by his own power, by keeping the law. And here's what he says. All of that reason to boast more than anybody else. But whatever gain I had, all my law-keeping, All my righteousness, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, all his good works, all his law keeping, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In Paul's trying to deal with being under the curse of the law through being a good little Pharisee that obeyed um, relatively well the, the Old Testament law and a lot of extra added rules that they put on top, nothing. Couldn't give him righteousness But he traded it away to get a righteousness that comes from where? From within? From being a good little Christian? No. A a righteousness that comes from God through faith. A righteousness that is not his own from the law, but a righteousness that comes from the Lord our righteousness. His lineage, his actions, his passion didn't get him anything. But trusting in the Zedekiah, the Lord, our righteousness, the righteous branch of David who lived perfectly on his behalf, Jesus Christ, born, living a perfect childhood, as the Gospels say, he grew up, he grew in knowledge and stature and wisdom before God and before men. He lived perfectly obediently. That is the righteousness that Paul traded his own rubbish righteousness to attain. We were guilty under the law. We couldn't ever earn our way out. But we know we need to be declared righteous some way if we can't be righteous. And Christ is the fulfillment of that promise to Jeremiah, to the people 
Christ was the branch of David, the Lord our righteousness. Why is the promise of his life so important? It's because he lived on our behalf. He did what you and I could never do. Now, what's the significance of that for today? First of all, we no longer live under the curse of the law. If you are in Christ, you are free from the curse of the law. So in Romans chapter 8, for example, verses 6 through 8, this is sort of the before and after. This is how Paul describes a person before they have that foreign righteousness, and then he describes what it's like a person after they have that foreign righteousness given to them. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're here and you're not in Christ, if you are here and you haven't believed in Jesus Christ for salvation from your sins, you cannot please God. You can choose 10 random rules from the Old Testament. God will never be pleased in how you try to obey them. But here's the after. In Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Before, no hope of righteousness. Now, in the spirit, if you've put your trust in Christ, you get Christ's righteousness given to you on your behalf credited to your account. So you're free from the curse that people have lived under for thousands of years. Free from the, the penetrating gaze of God who sees all and knows all, right? All the sins that we do in private, all the times that we think something and think, wow, I'm glad nobody can read my thoughts there. I was just thinking about pulling somebody out of their car. Or, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. For me, it's just I was thinking of doing too nice of things to people. But but we're no longer under that curse if we're in Christ. We have a righteousness that comes from somewhere else. Right? Overcome. That's amazing. Second, we're free from just trying to avoid the consequences of our sin. So, in the same way that Israel was just trying to get out of being punished by God. They were trying to get out of being occupied by their geographic political enemies. And they're like, get us out, God. Get us out. Get us out. And God wanted to give them righteousness. And they're like, just get us out of the Babylonians. Um, For us, we have that same freedom because of Christ's righteousness, his, his life, to avoid consequences of sin in our own life. Right? And I don't mean we don't get the consequences. I mean we don't live to just get rid of the consequences. For example, 
none of you here struggle with blame shifting, right? I'm sure, right? I'm sure nobody has ever, you've, leave this out, right? I, I guarantee I'm going to leave this here until next week, right? So I'll have it next week. That's good. But when somebody comes and they say, ah, oh, Mike, you left your tea on the stage, I'll be like, the cleaner should have come and taken it. They come on Saturday. It's Sunday. They should have taken it, right? None of you struggle with that, I'm sure, right? But this Lord, our righteousness, it frees me from having to defend myself in that way. It frees me so that I can say, you know what? I am a rotten sinner. I left my teacup here. But you know what? My righteousness doesn't come from keeping a clean church. My righteousness comes from Jesus Christ who lived and died on my behalf. It frees us from switching saviors, right? So um, we have a tendency to, instead of looking to Christ for our salvation, we look to other things. They're called idols, right? It's when you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing. I like that nice, easy definition. So, for example, instead of... um, Instead of um, efficiency, maybe would be one that some people would struggle, struggle with. Um, they would maybe have a tendency to say, uh, we are, I'm going to run a tight ship. We're not going to waste any energy. And eventually they end up serving efficiency instead of using efficiency to serve God, right? Now, if you are free from the curse of the law, you're free from just avoiding the consequences of being anxious because things aren't all going your way. You can be free to say, God, I am trying to control everything. I am worshiping running a tight ship more than I am worshiping you. Thank God I have a righteousness that comes from without, not a righteousness that comes from within. Or we have a tendency to twist the truth, right? Um, so I, I wrote down here in my notes, we're like billboard lawyers, like the, the sleaziest. Maybe some of you have family that are billboard lawyers. I don't know. Um, maybe not all billboard liars, lawyers. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Freudian slip, right? Um, right? You're going to defend yourself. Well, you know what? It doesn't say, uh, it says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, um, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying blah, 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 the scriptures, but you're talking with somebody about this verse, for example, and you leave out the gospel of Christ, and you just say the gospel, the gospel, and the person will be like, it says, it doesn't say the gospel. It says the gospel of Christ, right? I'm in nitpick here, but it's the word of God. Right? And you say, yeah, but when I say the gospel, I mean the gospel of Christ. It's the same thing, right? And this person could dig their heels in and be like, I'm going to be the billboard lawyer, nitpicking. It doesn't say gospel. It says gospel of Christ. Right? If your righteousness comes from your sense of identity in being the nitpicking billboard lawyer, you got a problem. If your righteousness comes from without, from this... Um, Zedekiah, Jesus Christ, the Lord, our righteousness, you don't have a problem because you can say, you know what? I repent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm being nitpicky in a way that I shouldn't. And um, 
Jesus Christ is my righteousness, not me knowing every tiny little, oh, well, in the ESV 2001, the type setting was different. Or I don't know. I'm just trying to think of, we nitpick about so many things. So we're, we're no longer under the curse of the law. We're free from avoiding consequences. And lastly, we're free from trying to get acceptance to God and trying to get a righteousness from God by our own doing. We all struggle with this. Every single one of us. You may think that you don't, right? But I'm going I'm to encourage you to think about this. How many things do you do every day during the week because you think God's going to be happy with me? I've got news for you. God is, if you're in Christ, God is already happy with you. In Christ, right? That's the key. In Christ. If you think, I'm going to do this so that God loves me more, you have not grasped the concept of the Lord my righteousness. Paul got it, right? When he wrote, I traded all my good deeds, all my law-keeping, all my Jewish heritage, all my lineage, everything, to have a different righteousness, a perfect righteousness. He got it. We don't get it. So, are you a stay-at-home mom, right? If, if you are a stay-at-home mom, I do not envy your position. I live with one. And of all people in the world who will probably pop from uh, pressure and stress, they've got to be like doctors and lawyers with little kids. It's hard. Um, you deal with so much. Is there freedom... Because think of the pressure that a stay-at-home mother has, right? Everybody is going to judge you by the way your kids turn out. Even here in the church, it happens. Don't act like it doesn't. In the world, right? You're thinking, oh, wow, my neighbors are going to judge me by how I'm a mom, right? You're, you're going to pop from the pressure. But guess what? Your acceptance by God doesn't depend on your mom righteousness. It depends on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to live so that you, mother, or you, parent, can live in freedom. Freedom from trying to gain his love, gain his acceptance by how you live. If you feel like you're not getting recognition at work, or you're not moving up fast enough or far enough, you're free to just stay in the position you're in, right? God hasn't called you to this world to move up the corporate ladder at all costs. He has called you here to make disciples, right? So if you don't feel led by the Spirit to pursue a different job, why are you going to fight for recognition? Has that ever happened to you at work where you do something, you do a really good job, and then the, the people around you don't notice, or your boss doesn't notice, and you're like, oh, there goes my resume, right? That's the big thing. I wanted the boss to put it on my side so I could apply for my transfer to Hawaii, whatever. It's hard for us. It's hard on us. But God doesn't accept you more or love you more because of the title you have at work. He just loves you in Jesus. That's amazing. You're free to strive. Again, I'm not saying 
just work your job forever. I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying don't find your standing with God in your job. Now, this can even be found in pastors, okay? In the spiritual side, Jeremy and I were talking about that just this week. There is this pressure, right, to serve God and serve you all that you don't understand. There's a performance pressure to be like, well, if I don't preach a good message, they're going to be like, well, let's get a pastor that knows how to talk good, right? Not, some of you are grammar Nazis. I know you're taking notes on me, right? This touches every single one of us. It happens in our friendships. It happens in our families. It happens in our church all the time. Okay? We need to peel back um, the veneer, peel back the fake righteousness that we're putting on, right? Like clothes. And we need to remember that if we are in Jesus Christ, we have been robed, clothed is the way the New Testament puts it, with Christ's righteousness. Why did Jesus Christ come to live? He lived perfectly so that you, sinful as you are, under the curse of the law, could take that robe of Christ's righteousness, put it on, and live in it the rest of this life. And miraculously, as we do that, he is making us like him. Right? 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus is our righteousness, our wisdom, and our sanctification. The more that we do this with each other, right? Take off the veneer, show each other who we are, and remind each other, well, my righteousness comes from Jesus, not from inside, not what I'm being vulnerable and exposing to you in this moment. It comes from Jesus. We are going to grow to be more and more like him. So let me, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll sing. Lord, I do thank you that... Um, as one hymn says um, about your word, about the law, about the gospel, all that it asks of us, you provide on our behalf. You provided a sinless life credited to our account. You provided a perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ without blemish, who died on our behalf, who took our punishment upon him and gives us his life. And so, Lord, that that double switch, that crediting of our misdeeds, our rebellion into Christ's account and his crediting of his righteousness into ours, Lord, we can never sing enough praises. We can never say thank you enough because where we have been under the curse of the law, where we have um, just tried to get out of the consequences of our sin, Lord, you have provided a foreign righteousness on our behalf, a way to come to you with nothing to have, or nothing to give and provide you on our own, and you give us a royal inheritance. And so we come before you this morning and we say thank you. Help us, Lord. Help us to peel back these layers of self-righteousness, of not wanting to embrace that the Lord Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He has lived and died and been raised on our behalf. Help us to live that out in our own daily life and as we live in our neighborhoods and in our families and friends. We love you and we thank you for everything that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.